Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. And on today's show, it's somebody that has a very rare career thing that, you know, every artist lives for this. Just to have a song, their first song, be one of those timeless songs, like for the rest of their lives, people will always be like, oh my God, I love that song. And every artist kills for it. But he's had an amazing career and he still has an amazing career. Does his thing. Montel Jordan, South Central Zone. We do it like nobody does. What's up, Kobe Cole? How you doing, man? I'm good, brother. It's good to see you, man. And um, you know, I I was spurred to to get you on the podcast because I was like, I I saw the Super Bowl commercial, and I was just, I mean, you're somebody I've known in this business for a long time. Literally, I knew you when you first got signed and first traveled outside of LA and and hit all the markets. And um, I've, I've watched you from afar, but I always admire um an artist that can make a song that lasts forever, particularly in an era now, especially on the hip hop side, where we don't really have a lot of artists that make forever songs, right? Like, you know, let's talk a little bit about your career because you're from South Central LA. You know, so I'm an East yes, Coast sir. guy. And all I knew about LA was NWA in the uh, in the 80s. They, they told me what life was like in LA. Um, and I also have a very good friend in the music business that grew up in South Central LA who like tells me all kinds of stories about it. But it is not an easy feat to grow up in South Central LA. So talk a little bit about just your humble beginnings um, in one of the roughest parts of America. Well, NWA did not lie. <laughs> they they told the truth about most everything that they, you know, that they were painting a picture of. And I'm just grateful, man, that even my career, I got the opportunity to use more of an R&B fused with hip hop version of storytelling to be able to to infiltrate the music business and, and find a pathway in. Slick Rick the Ruler was my mentor before I ever met him. Like when it came to to rap, you know, when it come to hip hop, I loved Eric B and Rakim. And like, although I was from L.A. and was living the whole, you know, you got to watch what streets you walk down. You got to watch the colors that you wear. Yeah. You know, all those things are very, very real. But hip hop for me was kind of authenticated out of what was happening on the East Coast with what little hip hop we were getting on the radio. Station 1580 K-Day out in L.A. was giving us as much hip hop as as we had any type of access to because it wasn't something you heard on radio. So the fact that I was getting hip hop sensibilities of gangster rap music from Easy and, you know, all those guys. But I was also hearing lyricism from guys like, you know, like uh, Rakim. I started to carve my pathway, you know, musically through fusing those things, but telling the stories like Slick Rick was giving me from the East Coast over the types of things that you would hear on the West Coast. So just to take it back a little bit, as you said, grew up in South Central LA, 4th Ave and Slauson, Crenshaw District. Uh, I was the oldest of four kids. Uh, moms and pops were together, married up until about 25 years. Uh, and, and then they uh, separated and divorced. And uh, so my journey was 
growing up poor, but not knowing we were poor. Right. Because there was a time when there was something called a middle class, a lower middle class that existed. And it was uh, you had enough to get by. You had enough to have friends come over and stay at your house. And so we thought the Jordan house, you know, because everybody could come over to our house and moms could make a big old thing of spaghetti. Like everybody would be eating good, you know? Yeah. You know, walking up the block every now and then to get a big carton of cheese that you had to cut from the block, you know? You know, we, we didn't have the Velveeta slices or the, you know, the whatever, you know, sometimes you did, but sometimes you didn't. But uh, the best way I like to explain my childhood is that my mom had to make our plates. This this wasn't like in our world today where you got like smorgasbord or you can just go buffet style and choices. eat whatever you, you want. Kids today. You have got, yeah, you got choices yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Back then, your yeah. mom made the plate in the kitchen and, and brought it out to you. And so if I had one chicken wing and a gang of potatoes i knew we didn't have a lot of chicken and mom was making it making it happen so that was kind of my childhood man and just navigating the streets of la between you know not being uh, involved in gangs but being affiliated enough to know how to maneuver through the streets like a lot of these guys probably knew my pops and so because i had a dad who was at home growing up i feared my dad more than i feared the crips you know, or the bloods, because I, I had a I had a, a father figure present at home. Uh, so that was kind of kind of my upbringing, man, the, the early beginning, the early stages of just uh, growing up in the inner city. I, I never ventured outside of Los Angeles. I don't know how it is in New York or Philly or other places, but you, you have a radius like there are certain gangbangers that will tell you they, they grew up on a one block. And they've never even gone around the block because you don't travel. It's guys that never been to the beach before, you know, and I can remember that growing up in South Central L.A., there were certain blocks that I walked up and then certain blocks that I could walk back. But I never went walking like just through neighborhoods or walking different places. I had a radius uh, and it wasn't until I was much older that I recognized, oh, there's Santa Monica. Oh, there's Long Beach. Oh, you know, there's Malibu. There were other things outside of South Central L.A. that there were other things bigger than my block. And that will come much, much later in life, man. So you get through living in South Central L.A. And I'm sure you had a lot of people that, you know, that probably didn't make it because it's just it was just it was rough. It was a lot of stuff going on. But then you end up leaving and you go to college. Talk about that transition um, to college and what was that like for you leaving South Central and going to Pepperdine, correct? Is that where you went? That is correct. That is yep. correct. I was a Pepperdine wave. A uh, lot of layers to that right there. I thought because I grew up, like I said, I grew up black, black. I grew up in an all black neighborhood, all black church, mostly all black pre, you know, preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school. You know, I was, I was, you know, everything was black, black for me. In high school, I did have uh, a teacher at a Catholic high school. I wasn't even Catholic, but it was the way to keep me from going, going to Cripshaw. You know, Crenshaw was called Cripshaw back then or or Dorsey, which had a lot of bloods. And so you either had to choose where you was going to be going to school. And so my, my parents sent me to a, all uh, guys Catholic school over in Gardena, California, which was Sarah uniforms. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure did. Yeah. And listen, learned, learned a whole lot out that way. Right. Learned, learned a whole lot out that way. And, uh, I think the interesting part of that story is I, I had a teacher who was an English professor, an English teacher named Craig Mitchell. 
Today, Craig Mitchell, I think, is a judge out in California. I've been trying to get in contact with him because he's a big inspiration in my life. I don't even know if he knows it, but Craig Mitchell uh, once asked me what I was going to do for college. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, probably go to a HBCU, you know, go to Howard or, or go to Morehouse or something. And, you know, at that time, Cosby Show, you know, a different world. That was my exposure to what college was supposed to be. Uh, and so he asked me an interesting question. He said, Montel, what have you been told most of your life? And I was like, I don't understand what you mean. He's like, what have you heard said to you over and over again? And so I thought about it. And, and you know, I'm having this real truthful, transparent conversation. And, and, you know, and I told him, I said, well, I've been told uh, that in order for a black man to be successful in this world, he has to be twice as good as a white man. Yep. And I literally sh- I shot that at him. And so he said to me, if you've been told that, why would you go to compete against other black students when you can go and compete against white students? And when he said that to me, I thought about it. And then I found the whitest college that I could find. (laughs) And that was that was Pepperdine University. Uh, uh, Congressmen's kids and senators kids and, you know, kids driving around in the BMWs out on the on the Malibu coast. That was the school. I figured if I'm going to compete against white America to be twice as good, uh, I'm going to go and compete against them rather than compete against the people that have looked like me my entire life. So uh, good, good, bad or indifferent. That was my choice of why I went out to Pepperdine University. Uh, And from that standpoint, I felt like it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, It also was my journey into the fraternity of Kappa Alpha Psi, and that was because it was the closest thing that I could ground myself into some form of the culture while I was assimilated out in, you know, out in Malibu. So uh, Pepperdine was was my choice. And and a funny story about that is I would not get my degree from Pepperdine uh, until almost 30 years later. I was a wow. couple of units shy of graduating uh, about 12 units shy of graduating when I left and moms, grandmoms, everybody saw me actually walk across the stage uh, and and get my diploma, which there was no diploma in it. But when I saw that they were satisfied, that they thought I graduated, I dip set and I never looked back until the pandemic rolled around. And I was like, huh, maybe I should ask the, the university if I can go back and and finish what I started. And so literally 29 years later, I went back online and got back into courses and classes and finished my last 12 units, got a really nice GPA to finish it out, uh, and finally got my diploma in twenty December of 2021 uh, after 29 years. And I only say that because I want people to see this to know you are never too old to start and you're never too old to finish. And that's admirable that you did that. You did that. that a lot of people... They just, it's hard, man. It's like they just, it's such an obstacle and you were able to cut through it. So you get out of college and you started working for a company that made infomercials for television. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if I've ever, if I've ever shared this before, maybe once before. Uh, But uh, I worked for a company called Williams Television Time. They they purchased and they, they did infomercials for TV. So all the old school stuff like the food dehydrator and the, uh, uh, 
the spray on hair stuff and you know everything that you'd be watching back in the day at 2 30 in the morning when somebody's saying you dial this number you know right here uh i did that i was a buyer for television time funny funny that while i was at williams television one of their clients was stan lathan and russell simmons and they were coming out with a product called death comedy jam that was coming out on like the vhs tapes yep and so we when the my company was secured to do the campaign i actually did the voiceover work for that television commercial long before i was ever signed to russell simmons so literally late at night you would hear this isn't just comedy this is russell simmons all-star comedy jam with some of the funniest comedians of the 90s starring dl hughley guy to, like i i saw so i did the voiceover stuff for def jam long before i was ever even artist on def jam wow look at that that's a real like that must have been like man when you when you eventually got signed which we'll get to in a second that that was like wow that's a good thing to look back so one of the things i also heard is that you wanted to be a singer so you were like trying your best to just kind of get out there in la and you arranged a showcase for people to come see you and at this showcase you arranged which you invited all your friends and co-workers janet jackson showed up and shanice wilson is that correct that's close very close um it was shanice wilson's mom and her auntie's showcase so they were out in pasadena california they were running a showcase i think it was like every tuesday or wednesday night it's called a crystal penny showcase uh and they would have local talent come through and, and perform um i started going on wednesday nights and I don't know if I was building a following, but Shanice's mom and, and aunt, they kind of took a, took a liking to what I was doing and they gave me an opportunity out there, which was pretty cool. And I kept my music business aspirations and my work completely separate. Like no one knew, you know, like when I was at church playing music at church, nobody knew that other than my church people, you know? And right. when I was doing the nightclub thing, nobody knew that other than, you know, the people that knew I was trying to get on in that way. And so one day I made the, I thought I was doing a good thing, uh, but it was it would be a, a mistake. But I invited all the people from the office uh, to come and see me perform at the Crystal Penny Showcase. So on a Wednesday night, I probably had maybe 10, 15 people from the office roll through and watch me perform that night. I killed it. I killed it. And it was I think it was either Janet. Ja I think it was Shanice's birthday and Janet Jackson was there supporting her because they were they were friends at the time or either it was janet's party and i can't remember but they both were there in the building uh for this for this party and i remember i was performing doing cover tunes and singing made-up songs that i had created and i'm singing these songs man and people started bringing money up to the front of the stage and were laying it at my feet like laying money on the stage and i was like in my mind like wow like this is like this is something serious like I, what right. i made here like in the in this 15 minutes you know what i mean you, you're talking about a, a week uh, almost a week on the job uh and so when i got back to work the next day people came to me and they were like wow man that was really good you're not gonna be at this company long uh because you were you were awesome I, I can't see you being here long and then a week after that i got fired i got fired from the company Kobe and they brought me a cake. And I don't know if you know this, but when you get fired, people don't normally bring you a cake. No. But they brought me a they brought me a congratulatory cake. Like I was like a signed artist. Like I had a record deal. I, I have nothing, bro. Why did you but get they fired? Brought me a cake? I got fired because I was the employee, of, I was employee of the month the previous month. 
And then after people saw me at that showcase, what they kept saying around the office was, he's not going to be here long because he, he's going to be on his way. This guy's really good. There's no way he's going to stay at this company. And the right. powers that be at the company didn't want somebody they couldn't see that wanted to be there to grow in the company. So they were like, okay, well, let's cut our losses early on. That, that's so I think lame. It was, I think it was a God move, though, man. I, I yeah. think it was if, if I had stayed at the company, I mean, who's who would know? If I would have ever left, you know, no, I, they didn't I, I make mean, that's me real. That's yeah. real. They had to, they had to force me out. Yeah. So it was in that transition after that is when you kind of, well, did you, first of all, did you meet Janet Jackson that night? Did you make contact with her? Uh, you know, wasn't that type of party. It, it's the type right. of, you know, LA, you can all be in the same room, but like right. you rubbing shoulders are actually meeting somebody, you know, it, it didn't work like that. Like, even though I knew, Crystal and Penny, because they ran the showcase, I yeah. rarely bumped into Shanice until many years later when we were writing a song for her on her on her project. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Wow. So then you end up uh, doing a mixtape and then talk about how you connected with Russell Simmons because at the time, his Def Jam was really a hip-hop label I think they had one other R&B artist at the time. It wasn't what they were known for. And actually, they didn't really sign people outside of New York. So what what was it in that moment that uh, that was able for you to able to just kind of break through all of that to get signed by the biggest rap label in the game? Yeah, well, th that's a that's a tough story. It's, it's a good story, but it's a tough story. I was looking to be signed by John Singleton, who has now passed away. John Singleton, I knew John as Director J, Big Brother Director J of the Mighty Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. He he was in the chapter at USC of Kappa's where I had pledged. So so John saw me when I was online. So later on in this process, uh, John's movie blows up. Boys in the Hood is, you know, the biggest thing in the world. And he's got a production company called New Deal Productions. And then he also was, you know, you when you get a lot of bread like that, he also opened New Deal Records. Uh, and so he hired a guy named Paul Stewart, a white kid from Crenshaw, and uh, had that that kid working to be his A&R. And so Paul, who was real, real into, into uh, the culture, hip-hop culture, very, very well known, just kind of like he was just a go-getter, he's a hustler. Uh, he was the guy that was doing all the legwork for, for the music side for John. And so when uh, I started coming to John about my projects, John gave me money to do my first music demo, to go in studio, make records. And so I was doing those things, trying to get signed to New Deal Productions, or, or New Deal Records. 
Uh, and at the time, I think Paul was making a play to do something different because John was so into the film side that the music side didn't get the attention. Right. And maybe Russell was kind of, you know, kind of muscling in and, and having some conversations. So the way it plays out is I think Paul had a couple of artists that he was looking at, like he couldn't get like, you know, Dr. Dre was signed, but Dr. Dre had a, a cousin named Warren G. And so although Warren could have possibly been on New Deal, Paul took Warren G and a couple of other artists and took them to to Russell. And so when that happened, John went ballistic. He's like, you fired, you out of here. And so Paul ended up getting fired from New Deal. And so as Paul is going, he asked me, hey, you want to rock with me? I'm, I'm going over to Def Jam and I'm, I'm going to do an imprint with Def Jam. And I was like, nah, John is my guy. I'm staying with John. Right. And so Paul dipped and I'm trying to, to figure out what's going to happen with John. I understand Paul was John's music division. And so every call, every phone call, every uh, uh, two-way page, I don't even think two-ways was was invented back then. Yeah, just but, pages. Uh, <laughs> just pages. There, there, there was no way to contact John. And I would call the office and I would get the runaround. And this happened for months and months. And every couple of months, Paul would hit me up and he'd be like, yo, you want to get me that demo tape? Uh, you know, I, I got a spot for you out here at, at, at Def Jam. I'm like, nah, nah, I'm rocking with John. And sidebar did this. that uh, Warren G saved Def Jam. So when he brought him there, that saved the company because they were in a real down period. So that was like, he must have had like tremendous equity at that moment to do whatever he wanted to do. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Def Jam method uh, was piggybacking. If they could take a record... Uh, LL Cool J record, and then it blow up. They would go to radio afterward and be like, "Now you playing my LL record, and LL's doing your summer jam." You know what I'm saying? I got this Warren G record that I need you to, you know, to take a look at. And then if Warren G's record blew up, they would, you know, blow up and be like, "Hey, Warren G is gonna come and do your Winterfest, but I got this other record, you know, that I need you to." And so the whole idea of, you know, getting infiltrating into radio was piggybacking records off of, you know, off of other artists. Uh, and so when Paul finally, after all these months, I finally gave Paul just a ratty demo tape, like, okay, you keep asking me here, take this demo. Uh, and Paul took it to, to Russell. And apparently that was enough for them to fly me out to New York city. And that's a crazy story. Uh, but that was the demo tape that got me signed uh, to Def Jam as opposed to being signed to New Deal. And like I said, that was a tough conversation to have to have with John because once he hears I'm signing, then it becomes like, this is fraternity, brother. This is, you know, what right. are you doing? And it's like, yeah, you're my guy. But man, I, I got to, <laughs> you know, I got fired. I'm eating top ramen and couple noodles. I'm living in North Hollywood right. with cut up hot dogs. And it's not, it's not really what you do. And so, right. Uh, that was me making the move to Def Jam, and so I rolled with Paul. So you get there and talk about the creation of This Is How We Do It, which was, I guess, now that I'm hearing that uh, Slick Rick was such a mentor to you as an artist, which he always was for all of us, and it was a, a shame that he dropped this great album, and we had this vision of this amazing career, and then he goes to jail for 10 years, and we don't really hear it until he comes back out later in the 90s. So you make this first song, this is how we do it. The first song you, you release as a single. Talk a little about just the creation of that song and what was it about and 
the connection that you had to this new sounding music that was fusing, you know, a little hip hop with, with R&B. Yeah. Well, to me, this is how we do it was a record long before I ever created the record. In other words, I, I when I was doing the fraternity stuff on the college campuses, I was uh, I watched DJs real closely. I watched how they how they spun records. I watched how they told stories the same way rappers were telling stories. A good DJ uh, is telling a story. Uh, he's painting a picture of what the night is supposed to feel like. He's a good DJ. Like, you're not just playing records. Like, yeah. you know, there's certain records that are going to move the crowd a certain way. And you know that if the last call for alcohol is like one one thirty, and the, and the club is closing at 2, you're not playing your hottest records at 11.30. Like, you... You got to tell the story. You know, you got records you can play, but you know, you saving your your home run hitters, your batting cleanup. And no matter what party I went to, Slick Rick's children's story was going to be heard like somewhere in the last hour before closing time. Like you wasn't going to hear that joint like earlier in the in the night. He right. he had that that type of record that you you knew when that thing came. I could watch the entire floor shift when. When that record hit, when that bounce, boom, boom, like the whole floor, like you could feel the energy of the room, the way people walk with their drinks and like, ah, it was just like, uh. And I would watch it when I was at a party at Cal Berkeley or when I'm at San Jose State. I'm in San Diego. I'm all over the West Coast. And I would watch every single party I was at. When that record hit, it just shifted the room. And so I said to myself, long before I ever was in the music business, I said to myself, if I ever get in the music business, I'm going to sing over that record. I'm going to sing over that record because I knew that this was now the culture of, you know, sampling was just now starting to take off my demo tape. I was sampling blues records, Diddy and like everybody was really into this place of sampling records. And I knew I said, man, if I, if I could sing over that record, that's it. I just got to be able to sing over that record. And so years later, you know, when I finally got the record deal and I'm working on my first album, all the songs I did on my very first album, the This Is How We Do It album, uh, This Is How We Do It was the very last song I worked on. I had the track wow. that I had done. Uh, I produced the track. I co-produced the track with OG Pierce, who's passed away now. And I had the record, but I never sang on it. I just kept it. And I did all these other records. I did something for the honeys. I did a bunch of different stuff. Payback with Coolio. And I never touched. This is how we do it. Because I was like, it's got to be right. It's got to tell the right story. And so I'm going to tell you how this is how we do it. It was created. If, you, if you're cool for this story. When I finally got the chorus, I didn't even have all the words yet. But when I knew the chorus was this is how we do it. Like it was just that was the easy part. It was the stuff that came between the da 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 da, da all of that. We didn't know what we were gonna say that, but we knew that this is how we do it. Well, you're talking about you know Africans in Zimbabwe. This is how we do it. Or uh, white people up in Newark, whatever. This is a uh, uh, Italians. It didn't matter. Everybody has their way of doing something. Jews, right. anybody, they got their way of doing something. So it seemed like an undeniable hook. So me and OG, we get into a studio, Paramount Studios on Santa Monica Boulevard in uh, in L.A., uh, in Hollywood. And I called up a bunch of my frat brothers and I was like, yo, I need y'all to come through the studio. I'm having a party here. And they were like, cool. I said, I need you to invite some ladies to come through, too. And so literally I went out, I bought a keg of beer and a gang of wine coolers. 
and I put them in the live studio and I took one microphone uh, like this mic right back here. You see this guy right here. I had a mic like that. It was a universal and I set it right in the center of the room. And when my guys got there and all the girls got there, I, I invited them to go into the other room and mm -hmm. just have drinks and hang out. And so when they got there, I told OG and the engineer, I said, hit record. And so they just recorded the sound that was in the room. Okay. Literally. Uh, now when I hear the song, I'm like, okay, it was like that, like almost like Luther um, having a party bad boy, like at the beginning of that song. Yes. Or Marvin Gaye got to give it up. Yeah. If you go true. back and you listen yep. to that song, almost through the whole song, you hear people laughing and you hear drinks and ah, people making noise. Yeah. Like blah, you're at a party. Yeah, you're, like you're at a party. And that's because yeah. back then, unlike maybe some of the more digital recordings and things that we have now, when stuff was going analog to tape, it captured the, you know, DJ Quick talks about this. There's something about the tape that captures the energy and the frequencies and stuff that's in the room. And so the reason why it was a drinking song and it was a party song and a laughter song is because that's how it was created. That's how it was birthed. And those people was just there in the room, just drinking, hanging out, laughing, flirting, having a good time. And that's them and on the hook. Hey, that's all that's of them, them on the hook. That's yeah. all of them on the hook. I, I had them gather around the microphone and I just said, just say, this is how we do it. And they all was in there just like, this is how we do it. I just like, really, like, just go at it. This is how all off key, all everything. And that was what was captured, you know what I mean, to be the, the foundation of the song and then the other pieces afterwards i'm kind of buzzing it's all because all of that came afterwards but um that's how this is how we do it what well, was created man mcdonald's is not new to chicken so maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the mccrispy juicy fried chicken buttery bun unmatched pickle to chicken ratio yeah they know what they're doing in fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So the song comes out. First of all, did you even have any like vision of what you thought the song was going to do as a first single? New artist, Def Jam, a lot of pressure. And this is how you do it. This is how we do it comes out. What were you thinking before it was released? And what, what was your vision of it? The vision for it. Well, first of all, I got to give shouts out to Kristen Jordan uh, because my wife uh, fought for that record. She fought for that record. Lior Cohen fought for that record. Russell did not fight for that record. Russell, and, and I get it. Russell wanted something for the honeys to be the first single. Which was Russell a good song. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very good song. Russell yeah. wanted something for the honeys to come first, and then he wanted to follow it up with This Is How We Do It, which God knows what would have happened you know, at that point. But as a new artist, you, you weren't guaranteed a second single. Yeah. And so we didn't know if we come with this record first and then try and come with this, how we do it afterwards. If we, this is how we do it, may not ever get a shot. 
So we fought, fought, fought Russell for this is how we do it to be first. Um, and so two things kind of happened from that. We were right about this is how we do it being the record that it was. And Russell was right about this is how we do it being the record that it was. Because when we tried to drop something for the honey second, nobody wanted to play the record because they were still playing this is how we do it. Yeah. So it was almost like my first record overshadowed anything else that we could possibly put out because the record was so, you know, was so big. And so, you know, but that that was the record, you know, that that we chose and we went with that song first uh, and coming out of the gate with a record that big. Uh, we knew it was going to be big to answer your question, but I was terrified because right as we started doing the promo and the white labeling, an artist, a Caribbean artist, uh, Capleton, dropped a record called Tor yeah. that used the same sample. So I'm like about to drop this Slick Rick sample on the world, and my man leaks this Tour record that uses the same sample that I'm about yeah. to drop. I was crushed, bro. I was crushed. I was like, oh, my God, how could this how can this even happen? And that record went hard, too. Like, mm-hmm. like, like the record went hard. That's on the East Coast because he was he was, you know, that that was on the East oh. Coast. That was a given. But they ended up being played back to back. So it was helpful. It was yeah, helpful it was, it was. because D, because at least DJs were taking that record and they would spin my yeah. record and, and they put them together. I thought his record would crush my record. But literally, they would put them together, and then eventually, I think Def Jam signed uh, him to Def Jam uh, so that they could maybe kind of control a little bit the the narrative of what was going to happen with the song and which sample would get the the biggest usage. So, talk about that song. How did it change your life? Just what's a moment that you just remember from when you know the song came out, or even maybe over the course of the years, where you're just like it just blows your mind that you could create art like that in a studio with your frat brother. And it would just carry on forever for, for generations. Yeah, man. Uh, it, you know, I'm still, you know, I look at, at the song today and I look at the TV commercials and I look at the, the advertisements and the, the, the way that the song is still being used and how today, if you put the song on, it still generates a feeling like what was captured on the tape back then still is transcending time now that when you put on a record today, it still feels like the song was made yesterday, you know? And so because of that, I'm grateful because it, you know, has allowed me to have relationship with my guy, Slick Rick and his wife, Mandy. And and we have a brotherhood that's super cool that it's not a lot of people that get the opportunity to look up to their idols and then say that that's your friend at the same time. Uh, So that was cool. Uh, In addition to that, um, I think having a song that is your first record that's that big, part of the journey was making sure I had other records that could follow it or that would yeah. hopefully not overshadow, you know, and I talk about this. I try not to talk about it much, but, you know, artists, they worry about the you know, one hit wonder. And I see it all the time. You yeah. know, people be like, yeah. oh, Montel Jordan, you know, one hit wonder. I, I hope, you know, hope he eating good off that one record. And I'm like, bro, one record. I mean. You know what I'm saying? I got, I got five number ones, I, you know, yeah. but yeah. whether it was my records or other records that I wrote for other people, but that's just more of a, they don't know. And so right. uh, I'm, I'm comfortable that this is how we do it, man. It was uh, 
Slick Rick had an amazing hit record. And I think together those records paired up with this is how we do it, turn the record into a classic. And um, just to have something like that in your belt that you can travel all around the world, you can tour, you can still go places. Man, this record's pushing up on 30 years, man. Like literally 30, yeah. 30 years. And I think uh, maybe if I sidebar just a little bit, I think the beauty of the record, this is how we do it, was that it was not just the record. I think that back then people were investing in artistry and not just records. So at the time when I was out, people knew just one of them days, but they also knew Monica, you know, or they knew this is how we do it, but they knew Montel Jordan. Like a lot of the artists, they knew the artists. Right. Whereas they had a connection to you. Yeah. 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 I'm getting this record because I like the artist too. I like the song, but I like the artist too. Right. And the, the way I like to look at it is that whether Sade drops another record or not, I will always be a Sade fan. I'll always play a record. If she put out, if she put out something tomorrow, I don't care if it never hits the radio. I don't care if I if I hear she's dropping yeah. an album, I'm going to get it. I, yeah. I just am. It ain't got to have a radio single. It ain't got to have this amount of spins. It ain't got to be well. I got to like three to four songs on the album. If she, I'm bought into her more than I'm even bought into her music, and so I think that that's the difference between maybe later generations and the music that we created was because. People bought into the artist and not just the song. A lot of people today like songs, but they don't even know which artists. Yeah, you know, they can walk there, walk past you, and they got a number one record. You would have no idea. No idea. It's really so crazy how things are now. So going back to Slick Rick, you ended up being his label mate. Do you? What was the first time that you met him? What was that like? Because he had probably heard your song while he was locked down, and then it became such a big hit. And what was your first interaction like with him? First time I met Slick was crazy because I was in New York. We were underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. We were shooting the video for I Like. So I knew that he was okay, that he was cool with the This Is How We Do It song because he agreed to do the feature, you know what I'm saying, on on I Like, which was on my second album. It was for the Nutty Professor soundtrack. It ended up being the first single off the Nutty Professor soundtrack. So I never actually got a chance. I wasn't in the studio with him when he recorded it. The first time we met was on the video site. So when you see that that video, I like where the the Porsche is racing against the Bentley or Rolls Royce and Slick is driving the car and the police officer pulls him over. All of that was shot underneath the Brooklyn Bridge on site. And that's the first day that I met Slick. And what was crazy about Ricky is he hadn't been out for long, you know what I'm saying, when, when I met him. And so Def Jam was also trying to help, hey, Montel is hot right now. Let's get him on his feature. Let's start getting him back out there. So he agreed to do that record, but he didn't talk a lot. You know what I'm saying, Rick? Yeah. You know, I guess very reserved. Very reserved. Very, yeah. And you don't know, you know, when you've been when you've been away, you know, for a while, you know, your conversation and your mode of how you communicate. It wasn't like I'm looking you all in your eye or having, you know, it was just kind of you know, and Rick is just, he, I mean, he's a ruler, you know, so he would be like, you know, you like the song, you know, it was, it's just real kind yeah, of. And he, the music business had changed so much so quickly. Like when he went in, it was one way when he came out, that was the sort of the Renaissance period of just when everybody was going gold and platinum and, you know, people were starting to make money, actually real money from their, from, from being an artist. 
So I know yeah. that. I mean, I, I always thought that was pretty cool. I, I mean, I've I'm admired Slick Rick just as a child of hip hop, just, you know, his first album. And I always find it a very interesting story. And there's a whole episode of the backstory that I've done about him. And I shared an interview that I did with him when he got out of jail. Right. And we went through his whole career. That was the, cause I was a kid when he was, when he first came out, I was, you know, young adult when he first came out and I was on the radio, yeah. but then I was a fan. So then I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I got an hour with slick Rick. And he's just such an interesting dude, man. He's just, yeah, you know, they, they don't make him like that anymore. So you got the song and change your life. You 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 also wrote some major records like Nobody's Supposed to Be Here from Deborah Cox, which I'd really like to know who was that about when you wrote it. Um, and Incomplete <laughs> from Cisco, two massive 90s records that you wrote in addition to all of the other songs that you wrote. But, you know, talk a little bit about your pen game and just writing songs for other people. Yeah, for sure, man. I had a strong team, uh, and really the, the team, uh, even with the writers and the the producers, everything hinged on one one guy named Shep Crawford. Uh, Shep Crawford, to me, even to this day, is is a genius. He musically was my you know when I grew up in that little church, you know, in South Central, and I was sitting on the piano across from me was Shep Crawford, who was sitting on the organ, and so. From kids, from childhood, you know, from not, you know, he's my god brother. So we grew up together, you know, lived in South Central together, went to church together, played basketball together. Like our entire lives revolved around music and the church. And so once I started heading down that pathway, I told a bunch of the kids I grew up with, I said, hey, if this thing pops off, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And I asked Shep, I was like, hey, if, when this thing goes, I'm coming for you. And when I came back, Shep was one of the guys that was like, I'm with you. I'll do whatever you need to do. So he was a music director. He traveled on the road with me. He played CD or, you know, played tapes and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, dats during on the dat machines and stuff like Shep was there and dope songwriter and producer. And, and so together we wanted to be the next Jimmy jam and Terry Lewis. Uh, so, the the journey for us with my records was Def Jam needs to keep me in the space of hip hop credibility and R and B, so I can only do so much creatively because right. I need to keep my R and B hip hop swagger. Like you can't be singing ballads and be the the guy that's tipping up forties. Like it, at that time, later maybe some of the other guys could do that, but for me. It was, we need club bangers. We need up-tempos. And so a lot of the ballads that I wanted or that I loved, I couldn't do them. And Shep had these great ideas. He would come with the biggest hooks in the world. And I was the guy that came with the verses. So uh, nobody's supposed to be here. Shep had a chorus. He had the music. He had the chorus for nobody's supposed to be here. And when it gets to the second part where it says, my heart says, uh-uh, nobody's supposed to. And I came, I was like, no, don't say, uh-uh. Say my heart yeah. says, no, no, nobody's supposed to be here. And it's all oh, this dope. So a little change there in the chorus. Right. But where right. I came in and where my pen comes in is, I spent all my life on a search to find the love who stayed for eternity, the heaven sent to fulfill my needs. But when I turn around again, love has knocked me down. Like, the verses were, were me. And then together we would combine like on the bridges. McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So that song was originally written How did we for Patti LaBelle. How yeah. did we get here? Like, yeah, whoa, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, I, I but mean, that song was at that, at that age where, like, you know, I was in my twenties, so it was like you're dating people and you break up, and it was. I remember the first time I heard that record, and I was like, wow, this is such a real record. And I didn't know till a couple of years ago you wrote the record, but I was just like, and it really put her on the map. I mean, you should change her life. It's a big record for her. Clive Davis heard it. A couple of people wanted the record, which is funny. I, I we did the record for for Patty Labelle. Patty Labelle will tell you to this day she heard the record and was like, "Nah, that's not me." We had a girl demo the record to sound like Patty Labelle, so when she heard the record, she would hear herself on the record, and she was like, "Nah, that's not me." And so it was like, "Okay, well, what do we do with this record?" Uh, a lot of people wanted the record. Clive Davis had mentioned at the time he had so many big artists. He had Whitney Houston at the time. We were like, oh, we could get this record maybe on Whitney. At the time, Puff Daddy wanted the record for Bad Boy. He wanted it to be Faith Evans' single. But I can hear them uh, all he didn't want to give song. us the – what's that? I can hear them all singing the song. Like, as you tell me the oh, artist, yeah. I can hear them. You know, Whitney, Whitney would have murdered that record. No question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. And that's why we were like, we were like, cool. Or even Faith Evans, you know, we thought Faith could, you know, could kill that joint too. It's just, we weren't willing to give up all the publishing on the record, right. Right. you know, for a fee, well, that was smart. you know, that was smart. Yeah. You know, and people have done that before, but you know, thank God we, we, uh, we turned that check down. So, uh, yeah. And, and Deborah breathed life into the song, man, like, like nobody else. And so, the song was originally, in my mind, it was made for Patti LaBelle, but God had it in mind for Deborah, And so I'm super, super glad because she's the consummate artist. I, I love her to this day, her family. Uh, and uh, I love that the people I was working with back then, we still are connected and, and cool now. Well, and similar to you, that was her introduction song that is timeless. And and people will never forget that record. And when you hear it, you l- literally stop and listen to the lyrics like it's the first time that you hear it. You could have an emotional uh, connection to it. So Montel, yeah. man, I'm really thankful that you took the time to, to speak to me today, man. I'm, I've always been just an admirer of yours and a fan and excited for you and, and all the things that you're doing. Uh, I, I, we didn't get a lot into it, but I do know that you've been very transparent about your life with the Lord and how you've made some transitions and talk about the music business and and how the music business had an effect on you and how you had you had to pivot and i've always just admired you man for your honesty and your openness and for even just sharing just the dark times because you know everybody thinks that it's all great you making money you're doing songs people know you but there's like a whole lot of things that happen and you've been very transparent throughout your career and you've just been blessed for it and uh i'm really appreciative that we had this moment 
I'm grateful to you for your platform, man. And, and more than that, like people will see this and they see you and I. Backstory is you were one of the guys that that helped me in my career. You were doing radio. You were playing my records. You were either program direct. Like you are responsible yeah. for certain regions in Philly, all different places that were playing my record because of you. And so I'm grateful, you know, to circle back around that years and years later, we could talk about, you know, what this was like. But you knowing very well like the plaques that's on your back wall back there it's probably a, this is how we do a plaque somewhere around there because you were a part of of that story and to get it on yeah. tonight's story and the less ride yeah. story like you were there yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. for those hits and for those number of records you were at stations that were playing them and you were the reason why those stations were playing them so you know my hat's off to you kudos to you as well for being a part of every all the successes that i've had musically uh in my time bro Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, hip-hop legend Jadakiss. We know we don't have the connects. We damn near nobody, but all we got is the streets. You know what I mean? So we're going to use the power of that, and if we're going to win. We're going to go together. Whatever we do is going to be in unity. We're going to win or we're going to lose together. But just know, if this don't work, <laughs> I hope there's some type of trust fund or I hope you got a plan B because it is going to be hard to recover from this. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC on Instagram, get the backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.